spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Do you like the Tales from the Crypt? Do you love the Tales from the Crypt? Even if you've never seen an episode, this podcast is for you. I'm Melissa, your ghostess with the mostess, and host of the Good Evening Kitties podcast. Each week, I break down another great episode from the TV series The Tales from the Crypt. Audio clips are included, so even if you haven't watched that episode, you're good to go. There are also special guests, trivia, mini-movie reviews, and much more. What are you waiting for? Check out the Good Evening Kitties podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Good Evening Kitties podcast. Check it out today. Greetings, listeners. We're back once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits like the dreamlands, or things of a weird nature, or things that are lovecrafty and leaning, weird fiction, science fiction, horror, learn of terrible meetings in lonely places, of cyclopean ruins and vast staircases that lead down to abysses of knighted secrets, of complex angles that lead through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous explorations in remote and forbidden places on other worlds and in different time-space continua. From the creation of our galaxy to the death of the sun, This is an exploration of the Cthulhu mythos from the perspective of humans' concept of history. We are the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. You can find us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Season 8. Reading 809. I mean, reading 84 through 89. This episode is brought to you by founditemclothing.com and bunnyslippers.com. Subscribe to us at PGTTCM all over social media. We are D.B. Spitzer and Sarah Fee most of the time, and you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. We recommend Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Check us out at PGTTCM.com and go to PGTTCM.threadless.com to pick up some cool merch. As I said, we're all over social media as PGTTCM, specifically Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if uh, YouTube's more of your thing, 
or you want to suggest us to someone who doesn't listen to podcasts, send them over to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos on the YouTubes. Written and edited by Daniel Spitzer. Audio edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. And the following pieces are used in this episode. The Chamber. Oppressive Gloom. The Sky of Our Ancestors. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you listen to, subscribe to, rate, or whatever podcasts. Support the show by hitting the patron button at the top of pgttcm.podbean.com. Donate what you want. We'll get you part of the scheme. You know, hey, it'll be cool. PGTTCM is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Learn more at pgttcm.com or darkmyths.org. A Dreamer's Tale is the fifth book by Irish fantasy writer Lord Dunsany, considered a major influence on the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, H.P. Lovecraft, Ursula K. Le Guin, and a whole bunch of other people. It was first published in hardcover by George Allen and Sons in September 1910. The following stories are collected in this week's recordings. Preface, Poltarnes, Beholder of Ocean, Black Daraus, The Madness of Andalspruits, Where the Tides Ebb and Flow, Bethmora, Idle Days on the Yawn, The Sword and the Idol, The Idol City, The Hashish Man, Poor Old Bill, The Beggars, Carcassonne, In Zacharach, the field, the day of the pole, the unhappy body, read by David Mack. Let's get started. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos begins now. In Zacharath. Come, said the king in sacred Zacharath, and let our prophets prophesy before us. A far-seen jewel of light was the holy palace, a wonder to the nomads on the plains. There was the king with all his underlords, and the lesser kings that did him vassalage, and there were all his queens with all their jewels upon them. Who shall tell of the splendor in which they sat, of the thousand lights and the answering emeralds, of the dangerous beauty of that horde of queens? or the flash of their laden necks. There was a necklace there of rose-pink pearls beyond the art of the dreamer to imagine. Who shall tell of the amethyst chandeliers where torches, soaked in rare Byrinian oils, burned and gave off a scent of blethany? This herb marvelous, which, growing near the summit of Mount Zomnos, scents all the Zomnian range, and is smelt far out on the Capuscran plains, and even, when the wind is from the mountains, in the streets of the city of Ognoth. At night it closes its petals and is heard to breathe, and its breath is a swift poison. This it does even by day if the snows are disturbed about it. No plant of this has ever been captured alive by a hunter. Enough to say that when the dawn came up, it appeared by contrast pallid and unlovely, and stripped bare of all its glory, so that it hid itself with rolling clouds. Come, said the king, let our prophets prophesy. Then the heralds stepped through the ranks of the king's silk-clad warriors who lay oiled and scented upon velvet cloaks, 
with a pleasant breeze among them caused by the fans of slaves. Even their casting spears were set with jewels. Through their ranks the heralds went with mincing steps and came to the prophets, clad in brown and black, and one of them they brought and set him before the king. And the king looked at him and said, Prophesy unto us. And the prophet lifted his head, so that his beard came clear from his brown cloak. And the fans of the slaves that fanned the warriors wafted the tip of it a little awry. And he spake to the king, and spake thus, Woe unto thee, king, and woe unto Zacharath! Woe unto thee, and woe unto thy women! For your fall shall be sore and soon. Already in heaven the gods shun thy God. They know his doom and what is written of him. He sees oblivion before him like a mist. Thou hast aroused the hate of the mountaineers. They hate thee all along the crags of Droom. The evilness of thy days shall bring down the Zedians on thee, as the sons of springtide bring the avalanche down. They shall do unto Zacharath as the avalanche doth unto the hamlets of the valley. When the queens chattered or tittered among themselves, he merely raised his We'd like to thank you for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, our sponsor is bunnyslippers.com, your finest source of wonderful Cthulhu slippers and cool, cool shirts from founditemclothing.com, your favorite shirts from your favorite cult films, and also these fine folks. Voice and still spake on. Woe to these walls and the carven things upon them. The hunters shall know the camping places of the nomads by the marks of the campfires on the plain, but he shall not know the place of Zacharath. A few of the recumbent warriors turned their heads to glance at the prophet when he ceased. Far overhead the echoes of his voice hummed on a while among the cedarn rafters. Is he not splendid? said the king and many of that assembly beat with their palms upon the polished floor in token of applause. Then the prophet was conducted back to his place at the far end of that mighty hall, and for a while musicians played on marvelous curved horns, while drums throbbed behind them, hidden in a recess. The musicians were sitting cross-legged on the floor, all blowing their huge horns in the brilliant torchlight. But as the drums throbbed louder in the dark, they arose and moved slowly nearer to the king. Louder and louder drummed the drums in the dark, and nearer and nearer moved the men with the horns, so that their music should not be drowned by the drums before it reached the king. A marvelous scene it was when the tempestuous horns were halted before the king, and the drums in the dark were like the thunder of God and the queens were nodding their heads in time to the music, with their diadems flashing like heavens of falling stars. And the warriors lifted their heads and shook, as they lifted them, the plumes of those golden birds which hunters wait for by the Lydian lakes, in a whole lifetime killing scarcely six, to make the crests that the warriors wore when they feasted in Zacharath. 
Then the king shouted, and the warriors sang. Almost they remembered then old battle chants, and as they sang the sound of the drums dwindled, and the musicians walked away backwards, and the drumming became fainter and fainter as they walked, and altogether ceased, and they blew no more on their fantastic horns. Then the assemblage beat on the floor with their palms, and afterwards the queens besought the king to send for another prophet, and the heralds brought a singer and placed him before the king, and the singer was a young man with a harp, and he swept the strings of it, and when there was silence he sang of the iniquity of the king, and he foretold the onrush of the Zedians, and the fall and the forgetting of Zacharath, and the coming again of the desert to its own, and the playing about of little lion cubs where the courts of the palace had stood. Of what is he singing? said a queen to a queen. He is singing of everlasting Zacharath. As the singer ceased, the assemblage beat listlessly on the floor, and the king nodded to him, and he departed. When all the prophets had prophesied to them, and all the singers sung, that royal company arose and went to other chambers, leaving the hall of festival to the pale and lonely dawn. And alone were left the lion-headed gods that were carven out of the walls. Silent they stood, and their rocky arms were folded, and shadows over their faces moved like curious thoughts as the torches flickered and the dull dawn crossed the fields, and the colors began to change in the chandeliers. When the last lutinous fell asleep, the birds began to sing. Never was greater splendor or a more famous hall. When the queens went away through the curtained door with all their diadems, it was as though the stars should arise in their stations and troop together to the west at sunrise. And only the other day I found a stone that had undoubtedly been a part of Zacharath. It was three inches long and an inch broad. I saw the edge of it uncovered by the sand. I believe that only three other pieces have been found like it. The Field When one has seen spring's blossom fall in London, and summer appear and ripen and decay as it does early in cities, and one is in London still, then, at some moment or another, the country places lift their flowery heads and call to one with an urgent, masterful clearness, upland behind upland in the twilight, like to some heavenly choir arising rank on rank to call a drunkard from his gambling hell. No volume of traffic can drown the sound of it. No lure of London can weaken its appeal. Having heard it, one's fancy is gone and evermore departed to some colored pebble, a gleam in a rural brook, and all that London can offer is swept from one's mind like some suddenly smitten metropolitan Goliath. The call is from afar both in leagues and years, for the hills that call one are the hills that were, and their voices are the voices of long ago, when the elf kings still had horns. I see them now, those hills of my infancy, for it is they that call, with their faces upturned to the purple twilight, and the faint diaphanous figures of the fairies peering out from under the bracken to see if evening is come. 
I do not see upon their regal summits those desirable mansions and highly desirable residences which have lately been built for gentlemen who would exchange customers for tenants. When the hills called, I used to go to them by road, riding a bicycle. If you go by train, you miss the gradual approach. You do not cast off London like an old forgiven sin, nor pass by little villages on the way that must have some rumor of the hills, nor, wondering if they are still the same, come at last upon the edge of their far-spread robes, and so on to their feet, and see far off their holy, welcoming faces. In the train you see them suddenly round a curve, and there they all are, sitting in the sun. I imagine that as one penetrated out from some enormous forest of the tropics, the wild beasts would become fewer, the gloom would lighten, and the horror of the place would slowly lift. Yet, as one emerges nearer to the edge of London, and nearer to the beautiful influence of the hills, the houses become uglier, the streets viler, the gloom deepens. The errors of civilization stand bare to the scorn of the fields. Where ugliness reaches the height of its luxuriance in the dense misery of the place, where one imagines the builder saying, Here I culminate, let us give thanks to Satan. There is a bridge of yellow brick, and through it, as through some gate of filigree silver opening on fairyland, one passes into the country. To left and right, as far as one can see, stretches that monstrous city. Before one are the fields, like an old, old song. There is a field there that is full of king cups. A stream runs through it, and along the stream is a little wood of osiers. There I used often to rest at the stream's edge before my long journey to the hills. There I used to forget London, street by street. Sometimes I picked a bunch of kingcups to show them to the hills. I often came there. At first I noticed nothing about the field except its beauty and its peacefulness. But the second time that I came, I thought that there was something ominous about the field. Down there among the king cups by the little shallow stream, I felt that something terrible might happen in just such a place. I did not stay long there because I thought that too much time spent in London had brought on these morbid fancies, and I went on to the hills as fast as I could. I stayed for some days in the country air, and when I came back I went to the field again to enjoy that peaceful spot before entering London but there was still something ominous among the osiers. A year elapsed before I went there again. I emerged from the shadow of London into the gleaming sun. The bright green grass and the king cups were flaming in the light, and the little stream was singing a happy song. But the moment I stepped into the field, my old uneasiness returned, and worse than before. It was as though the shadow was brooding there of some dreadful future thing, and a year had brought it nearer. I reasoned that the exertion of bicycling might be bad for one, and that the moment one rested this uneasiness might result. A little later I came back past the field by night, and the song of the stream and the hush attracted me down to it and there the fancy came to me that it would be a terribly cold place to be in the starlight if for some reason one was hurt and could not get away. 
I knew a man who was minutely acquainted with the past history of that locality, and him I asked if anything historical had ever happened in that field. When he pressed me for my reason in asking him this, I said that the field had seemed to me such a good place to hold a pageant in, but he said that nothing of any interest had ever occurred there, nothing at all. So it was from the future that the field's terrible trouble came. For three years off and on I made visits to the field, and every time more clearly it boded evil things, and my uneasiness grew more acute every time that I was lured to go and rest among the cool green grass under the beautiful osiers. Once to distract my thoughts, I tried to gauge how fast the stream was trickling, but I found myself wondering if it flowed faster than blood. I felt that it would be a terrible place to go mad in. One would hear voices. At last I went to a poet whom I knew and woke him from huge dreams and put before him the whole case of the field. He had not been out of London all that year and he promised to come with me and look at the field and tell me what was going to happen there. It was late in July when we went. The pavement, the air, the houses, and the dirt had all been baked dry by the summer. The weary traffic dragged on and on and on, and sleep spreading her wings soared up and floated from London and went to walk beautifully in rural places. When the poet saw the field, he was delighted. The flowers were out in masses all along the stream, he went down to the little wood rejoicing. By the side of the stream he stood and seemed very sad. Once or twice he looked up and down it mournfully. Then he bent and looked at the kingcups, first one and then another, very closely, and shaking his head. For a long while he stood in silence, and all my old uneasiness returned, and my bodings for the future. And then I said, what manner of field is it? And he shook his head sorrowfully. It is a battlefield, he said. Sonny. In the town by the sea it was the day of the pole, and the poet regarded it sadly when he woke and saw the light of it coming in at his window between two small curtains of gauze. And the day of the pole was beautifully bright. Stray bird songs came to the poet at the window. The air was crisp and wintry but it was the blaze of sunlight that had deceived the birds. He heard the sound of the sea that the moon led up the shore, dragging the months away over the pebbles and shingles, and piling them up with the years where the worn-out centuries lay. He saw the majestic downs stand facing mightily southwards, saw the smoke of the town float up to their heavenly faces. Column after column rose calmly into the morning as house by house was waked by peering shafts of the sunlight and lit its fires for the day. Column by column went up toward the serene down's faces and failed before they came there and hung all white over houses. And everyone in the town was raving mad. It was a strange thing that the poet did for he hired the largest motor in the town and covered it with all the flags he could find and set out to save an intelligence. And he presently found a man whose face was hot, who shouted that the time was not far distant when a candidate, whom he named, would be returned at the head of the poll by a thumping majority. 
and by him the poet stopped and offered him a seat in the motor that was covered with flags. When the man saw the flags that were on the motor and that it was the largest in the town, he got in. He said that his vote should be given for that fiscal system that had made us what we are, in order that the poor man's food should not be taxed to make the rich man richer. Or else it was that he would give his vote for that system of tariff reform which should unite us closer to our colonies with ties that should long endure and give employment to all. But it was not to the polling booth that the motor went. It passed it and left the town and came by a small white winding road to the very top of the downs. There the poet dismissed the car and led that wandering voter onto the grass and seated himself on a rug. And for long the voter talked of those imperial traditions that our forefathers had made for us and which he should uphold with his vote. Or else it was of a people oppressed by a feudal system that was out of date and effete and that should be ended or mended. But the poet pointed out to him small, distant, wandering ships on the sunlit strip of the sea, and the birds far down below them, and the houses below the birds with the little columns of smoke that could not find the downs. And at first the voter cried for his polling booth like a child, but after a while he grew calmer, save when faint bursts of cheering came twittering up to the downs, when the voter would cry out bitterly against the misgovernment of the radical party. Or else it was, I forget what the poet told me, he extolled its splendid record. See, said the poet, these ancient beautiful things, the downs and the old-time houses in the morning, and the gray sea in the sunlight going mumbling round the world, and this is the place they have chosen to go mad in. And standing there with all broad England behind him, rolling northward, down after down, and before him the glittering sea too far for the sound of the roar of it, there seemed to the voter to grow less important the questions that troubled the town. Yet he was still angry. Why did you bring me here? he said again. Because I grew lonely, said the poet, when all the town went mad. Then he pointed out to the voter some old bent thorns, and showed him the way that a wind had blown for a million years, coming up at dawn from the sea. And he told him of the storms that visit the ships, and their names and whence they come, and the currents they drive afield, and the way that the swallows go and he spoke of the down where they sat, when the summer came, and the flowers that were not yet, and the different butterflies, and about the bats and the swifts, and the thoughts in the heart of man. He spoke of the aged windmill that stood on the down, and of how to children it seemed a strange old man who was only dead by day. And as he spoke, and as the sea wind blew on that high and lonely place, there began to slip away from the voter's mind meaningless phrases that had crowded it long. Thumping majority, victory in the fight, terminological inexactitudes, and the smell of paraffin lamps dangling in heated schoolrooms, and quotations taken from ancient speeches because the words were long. They fell away, though slowly, and slowly the voter saw a wider world and the wonder of the sea. 
and the afternoon wore on, and the winter evening came, and the night fell, and all black grew the sea. And about the time that the stars come blinking out to look upon our littleness, the polling booth closed in the town. When they got back, the turmoil was on the wane in the streets. Night hid the glare of the posters, and the tide, finding the noise abated and being at the flow, told an old tale that he had learned in his youth about the deeps of the sea, the same which he had told to coastwise ships that brought it to Babylon by the way of Euphrates before the doom of Troy. I blame my friend the poet, however lonely he was, for preventing this man from registering his vote, the duty of every citizen. But perhaps it matters less, as it was a foregone conclusion, because the losing candidate, either through poverty or sheer madness, had neglected to subscribe to a single football club. The Unhappy Body Why do you not dance with us and rejoice with us? They said to a certain body, and then that body made the confession of its trouble. It said, I am united with a fierce and violent soul that is altogether tyrannous and will not let me rest, and he drags me away from the dances of my kin to make me toil at his detestable work, and he will not let me do the little things that would give pleasure to the folk I love, but only cares to please posterity when he has done with me and left me to the worms. And all the while he makes absurd demands of affection from those that are near to me, and is too proud even to notice any less than he demands, so that those that should be kind to me all hate me. And the unhappy body burst into tears. And they said, No sensible body cares for its soul. A soul is a little thing and should not rule a body. You should drink and smoke more till he ceases to trouble you. But the body only wept and said, Mine is a fearful soul. I have driven him away for a little while with drink, but he will soon come back. Oh, he will soon come back. And the body went to bed hoping to rest, for it was drowsy with drink. But just as sleep was near it, it looked up and there was its soul sitting on the windowsill, a misty blaze of light, and looking into the river. Come, said the tyrannous soul, and look into the street. I have need of sleep, said the body. But the street is a beautiful thing, the soul said vehemently. A hundred of the people are dreaming there. I am ill through want of rest the body said. That does not matter, the soul said to it. There are millions like you in the earth, and millions more to go there. The people's dreams are wandering afield. They pass the seas and mountains of fairy, threading the intricate passes led by their souls. They come to golden temples, a ring with a thousand bells. They pass up steep streets lit by paper lanterns where the doors are green and small. They know their way to witches' chambers and castles of enchantment. They know the spell that brings them to the causeway along the ivory mountains, 
On one side, looking downward, they behold the fields of their youth, and on the other lie the radiant plains of the future. Arise and write down what the people dream. What reward is there for me, said the body, if I write down what you bid me? There is no reward, said the soul. Then I shall sleep, said the body. And the soul began to hum an idle song sung by a young man in a fabulous land as he passed a golden city where fiery sentinels stood, and knew that his wife was within it, though as yet but a little child, and knew by prophecy that furious wars, not yet arisen in far and unknown mountains, should roll above him with their dust and thirst before he ever came to that city again. The young man sang it as he passed the gate, and was now dead with his wife a thousand years. I cannot sleep for that abominable song, the body cried to the soul. Then do as you are commanded, the soul replied, and wearily the body took a pen again. Then the soul spoke merrily as he looked through the window. There is a mountain lifting sheer above London, part crystal and part mist. Thither the dreamers go when the sound of the traffic has fallen. At first they scarcely dream because of the roar of it, but before midnight it stops and turns and ebbs with all its wrecks. Then the dreamers arise and scale the shimmering mountain, and at its summit find the galleons of dream. Thence some sail east, some west, some into the past and some into the future, for the galleons sail over the years as well as over the spaces, but mostly they head for the past and the olden harbors, for thither the sighs of men are mostly turned, and the dream ships go before them, as the merchantmen before the continual trade winds go down the African coast. I see the galleons even now raise anchor after anchor, the stars flash by them, they slip out of the night, their prows go gleaming into the twilight of memory, and night soon lies far off, a black cloud hanging low, and faintly spangled with stars, like the harbor and shore of some low-lying land seen afar with its harbor lights. Dream after dream that soul related as he sat there by the window. He told of tropical forests seen by unhappy men who could not escape from London, and never would. Forests made suddenly wondrous by the song of some passing bird flying to unknown eyries and singing an unknown song. He saw the old men lightly dancing to the tune of elfin pipes, beautiful dances with fantastic maidens, all night on moonlit imaginary mountains. He heard far off the music of glittering springs. He saw the fairness of blossoms of apple and may, thirty years fallen. He heard old voices, old tears came glistening back. Romance sat cloaked and crowned upon southern hills, and the soul knew him. One by one he told the dreams of all that slept in that street. Sometimes he stopped to revile the body because it worked badly and slowly. Its chill fingers wrote as fast as they could, but the soul cared not for that. 
And so the night wore on till the soul heard tinkling in oriental skies, far footfalls of the morning. See now, said the soul, the dawn that the dreamers dread. The sails of light are paling on those unwreckable galleons. The mariners that steer them slip back into fable and myth. That other sea, the traffic, is turning now at its ebb, and is about to hide its pallid wrecks, and to come swinging back with its tumult at the flow. Already the sunlight flashes in the gulfs behind the east of the world. The gods have seen it from their palace of twilight that they built above the sunrise. They warm their hands at its glow as it streams through their gleaming arches before it reaches the world. All the gods are there that have ever been, and all the gods that shall be. They sit there in the morning, chanting and praising man. I am numb and very cold for want of sleep, said the body. You shall have centuries of sleep, said the soul. But you must not sleep now, for I have seen deep meadows with purple flowers flaming tall and strange above the brilliant grass, and herds of pure white unicorns that gamble there for joy, and a river running by with a glittering galleon on it, all of gold, that goes from an unknown inland to an unknown isle of the sea to take a song from the king of over the hills to the queen of far away. I will sing that song to you, and you shall write it down. I have toiled for you for years, the body said. Give me now but one night's rest, for I am exceeding weary. Oh, go and rest. I am tired of you. I am off, said the soul. And he arose and went, we know not whither. But the body they laid in the earth. And the next night at midnight, the wraiths of the dead came drifting from their tombs to felicitate that body. You are free here, you know, they said to their new companion. Now I can rest, said the body. End of the Unhappy Body Chapter 16 of A Dreamer's Tales by Lord Dinsani Recording by David Mack End of A Dreamer's Tales by Lord Dinsani